gotta tell somebody. This is the best thing I've ever seen. That. Let's talk about that. Let's you talk need about this. that. Listen to this. Memorable and exciting. Well, then be less boring. I'm gonna tell everyone. Wait here. Quite a remarkable big daddy. Remarkable. Remarkable. What? Welcome to Remarkable, a podcast for B2B marketers that deconstructs the most iconic moments in film, television, pop culture, and advertising for a single purpose, to give you, the B2B marketer, the same storytelling techniques that the pros use. In each episode, you will learn techniques from Hollywood, Pixar, Marvel, and beyond, from Spielberg's hands to yours, bringing remarkable content ideas to you every single week. I'm Ian Faison, CEO of Caspian Studios. This is Remarkable. This week, we're talking about B2B marketing lessons from the Grateful Dead Europe 72 record album with the help of special guests, the director of content marketing at Lena X, Matthew Grant. The hippies are capable of extremely hard work, even though they tend to approach work as the rest of us do sport. Some of them are very successful. This is the house of a popular local band which plays hard rock music. They call themselves the Grateful Dead. Uh, what, what we're thinking about is a peaceful planet. We would all like to be able to live an uncluttered life. The more people turn on, the better world it's going to be. Expanding your uh, consciousness. Consciousness, changing yourself. Matt, how are you? I'm doing fine, thanks, Ian. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Wonderful to have you on the show. Super excited to chat about an album that I knew next to nothing about. And uh, this is very fun and exciting and uh, and relevant for our B2B marketing audience. So why the heck did you choose the Grateful Dead Europe 72 record album to talk about today? It's because it's fun. So first of all, I don't know if you, just to show people, this is the famous European Europe 72 album. It's got two beautiful pictures by the Mouse Kelly duo. And it's a good question. I think... When you guys approached me about the podcast, I was trying to think about content that mattered to me over time, but then also, of course, trying to think about content that I think B2B marketers could learn from. So what's a little odd about this record, there's almost nothing on the inside of it, but there is some writing and stuff like that, and I'll circle back to it. What they also did on top of everything was they also included an insert that had a number of photographs from the tour, and I'll let listeners know. In fact, some of this stuff you can go see, like Jerry Garcia wearing his weird Bozo the Clown hat. Well, at the time when the Grateful Dead toured in 1972, I mean, they'd already been to Europe, I think, once before, but this was like a bigger tour for them. They'd been around for about six years officially. I think their first record came out in 67. So they were kind of, I mean, they were already established. But there's a couple of things that I think that are interesting about this record, and there may be deadheads or even more hardcore deadheads than I've been who will correct me on this. But when the Grateful Dead made, they made their first record really quickly, like in two days or something like that. And it doesn't, if you heard it, and if you've heard it, ever heard the Grateful Dead, you'd be like, wow, that sounds like a punk rock band or something. It's very raw. See, but we're not punks. We're hippies. Their second record ended up being a big hit for them, and they spent a lot of time in the studio. In fact, if people look at kind of the history of rock recording and things like that, that their album called Anthem of the Sun is often pointed to as a sort of a masterpiece of people taking advantage of, kind of like with Sgt. Pepper or something like that, taking advantage of multi-track recording. And one of the things that's kind of cool about that record is it, goes in and out, there'll be studio playing, and then it'll morph into a live recording and then back into studio stuff. So it was very kind of cutting edge for its time. It's also very kind of psychedelic as things go. But the fact that they use live stuff there also points to, there was a guy named Owsley Stanley who was doing a lot of engineering for them and sound work and even sound design. Of course, he was also manufacturing LSD and selling it as one of the most popular creators of LSD at the time. Eventually, he had to go to jail for that because, as it turns out, it's illegal. The Grateful Dead themselves acknowledge they have used LSD. But one of the things that he had gotten the Grateful Dead to do was to listen to their live recordings. The Grateful Dead were, again, pioneers in terms of recording 
every show they did. And in part as just partly because there was such an emphasis on improvisation, partly because there was such an emphasis on hardcore psychedelic drugs. We were talking before about a way of being and 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 one of the ways of, of achieving that being is through drugs. They would listen back and this guy Owsley would force them to listen. Hey, you got to listen to what you guys are doing. And it was one of the things that became very important, I felt, to the Grateful Dead. I didn't see them myself until 1980, which is already kind of pretty deep into the trip. But their sound, their live sound, even in the 1980s, was cutting edge, better than anybody's, any show I would go to see. Like just perfect. So they really put, and of course, the Grateful Dead were sort of known for their live performance. So coming back to kind of where this album comes in, their third album, they ended up blowing a ton of money. I think they're on Warner Brothers Records and they blew like thousands and tens of thousands of dollars on this record that was not a hit and did not produce a hit. So then they were kind of in the hole to their record company. They followed that record up with two kind of stripped down albums that then had some of their famous songs like Truckin' and Casey Jones and whatever. And then they started putting out live records I think, and I don't quote me on this, or again, the deadheads will call me out on Reddit. Basically, they were probably under contract to Warner Brothers to put out a bunch of records. And then the easiest thing to do was to do live recordings because you don't have to worry about studio time or whatever. So they put out an album called Live Dead in 1969 that was actually pretty good. And again, even within the deadhead world is respected. There was another one that's just called Skull and Roses. It had an obscene title they gave it that I won't say here on air. And then they ended up putting out Europe 72. And if I'm not mistaken, that, which was a three-album set, so you get credit, you know, if you're trying to get out of your record contract. Any musician who's making records, who's appearing, doing things like that, is basically they're working for some unknown group of businessmen somewhere. That's an unfortunate thing. And after that, they then started their own record label and put out a couple records on that, but that ended up being kind of a financial disaster. So the reason I bring this record up is, first of all, it's, I think it's a good intro to The Grateful Dead. It was also when I was first getting into The Grateful Dead, my guitar teacher lent it to me, and I listened to it a lot and was really into it. And I know you said we were going to talk about lessons learned and stuff like that. So there was, I think there's a couple of things that are very interesting about this record for the time. So like I said, they had the insert and stuff. So they spent all their budget, obviously, on this production. But there's a couple things here. So one thing I'll point out is they wrote this sort of absurd story in the beginning of this. And it has like the tour dates from 72. But at the bottom, it says, there's nothing like a Grateful Dead concert. And this was like one of their bumper stickers, basically. So on the one hand, they were really focusing on, you could say, content creators. They're obviously songwriters and musicians. But obviously, they saw their USP or something like that really came down to their live performance. And because every show was different, like literally to the end, no set list, we're just going to get up there. Sometimes we're going to start one song. It could go on for 45 minutes. Who knows what's going to happen? So they really put a big emphasis on, in a sense, even though this is a live album, it's a little ironic. They put the emphasis on the experience. The experience of going to a Grateful Dead concert is what there's nothing else like. I couldn't believe it. I'd never experienced anything like that. It's almost like a religious experience. Of course, they put out tons of live albums and you can listen to them. But part of it is they were selling this live experience. And I'll circle back to that because I think that's sort of interesting. And they put out, I mean, Jerry Garcia died 30 years ago, almost. They continue to release stuff because they have such an archive of live recordings and people will still pay. They'll pay $400 for box sets of, oh, here's all the shows from Tour X or whatever. Another thing they did here that I thought was interesting was, and they did this on another record, <laughs> I don't know if people remember addresses, but they put this thing here. It says Deadheads. With static fans known as Deadheads, they are truly a cultural phenomenon. So they're already building a fan base, right? Oh, there were acid heads, you know, and yeah. there mm -hmm. were, uh, you know, speed heads and uh, grass yes. heads. And, and, just like and now it turned into deadheads. Yeah. Is that, that generally thought of as a flattering term, though? 
We, we think so. Yeah. <laughs> uh, if the head fits, where? Deadhead, send us your name and address, and we'll keep you informed. No duplications, please, it says. And then there's a P.O. box in San Rafael, California, where you can send this to. They had already, I think, on their album, the Skull and Roses album, before they'd started this thing. It said something like Deadheads Unite. And it was kind of getting people to write in and, you know, get on the mailing list. So literally, from a B2B marketing standpoint, already list building. <laughs> like early on, the most primitive kind of list building. Send me a postcard and I'll put you on a list. You don't really find that in B2B marketing anymore. So it might be a real differentiator if that's how you said, I'd love to get more of your stuff. And you just say, oh, yeah, send a postcard to this PO box and I'm happy to fax you back something. So I thought that was sort of interesting that that's part of this record. Another thing that's actually kind of cool about this record. So it is live album. But if you listen to it, the vocal harmonies are actually really good. The Grateful Dead at this time had been, and it was part of them going from a really hardcore druggy band that was really for heads to being a band that maybe had some hits. And there were more country, folk rock, country rock kind of sound that was becoming, you know, there was the Birds and later the Eagles and all these other bands that kind of capitalized on this. And the Grateful Dead were friends with those guys from Crosby, Stills and Nash, particularly David Crosby. And so he had gotten them into vocal harmonies and stuff. So it was something that I would say even my mom would listen to. My mom might not listen to 20 minutes of guitar feedback. Like no one wants to hear that. I mean, I do sometimes. But but hearing pretty vocals over this kind of country, folky sound, it's very pretty. And in fact, their live vocals aren't that bad, but they're not always dead on. It used to be that we failed way more than we succeeded. Uh, but you sort of mastered that energy. Not really. Go, oh. I, couldn't say that we, I couldn't say that we mastered it. Yeah. So one of the things they did with this record was they made it better. And so they re-recorded the vocals and stuff like that. So you came up with something that was a little bit of a hybrid save on recording time by recording everything live. In fact, you're getting paid then to record, which is kind of smart. And then let's just focus all the core studio time on perfect, like post-production, perfecting things. I was reading articles about your uh, work today, and uh, the phrase X chemistry came up. Yeah. And it was in context of something which occurred on stage. Yeah. What, uh, what would that be? It just has to do with being on. What do you think so far? Yeah, well, so... And we have a surprise for you today. We sent a letter to that P.O. box on your behalf. And here's what we had. No, I'm kidding. That would be so pretty. That would, that would have been good, though. Uh, Next time. <laughs> yeah. I know. Literally, a friend of mine the other day asked me, he's, what's your address? And I said, oh, Matt Todd Grand, blah, blah, blah. He's, no, your regular address. Because <laughs> he wants to send me something. Like, the idea that I'd have to give him my home address hadn't occurred to me. Oh, it's super fascinating. So I think a couple of things that we'll get into here in a second, but I'll sort of start my ruminations uh, on, on this is, so I grew up around a lot of deadheads because I grew up in the Bay area and uh, I knew a lot of people in the city and South Bay and all that sort of stuff yep. whose parents were deadheads. So famously my physics professor, a uh, huge deadhead, he was the swim coach and all their stuff was grateful dead. I don't know if I ever listened to a Grateful Dead song as a child. Like, I can't remember. Couldn't tell you a single song. So it was interesting nice, going back. And, but I knew the Bears. I knew yeah. the Grateful Dead. And I knew of Deadheads. And I knew that there was this fan group that was like, you know, as passionate as it could possibly be. And then, of course, everybody knows Cherry Garcia, the Ben and Jerry's flavor exactly. as well. Which is named after Cherry Garcia, obviously. So... For me, what was interesting about The Grateful Dead is it was more about the cult than it was about the actual music. And so yeah. going back and looking through this stuff now as a much older person and thinking back to some of the concerts that I've been to and live albums that I used to listen to when I was like younger, and you realize how big of a fan service it is to create an album that is live because if you were there and we've done two episodes on Taylor Swift recently, but if you are there, that that is like a, a time capsule that is like probably one of the fondest memories like of your entire life. I love it. It does something inside of me that just makes me feel good. Yeah. 
<laughs> makes you feel makes me feel larger than life sometimes, which is like something uncomparable to anything I've been able to find anywhere else. So one of the things that struck me of like why pick an album that is this Europe 72 tour. I like when you first said it, I was kind of like, that's such a random thing to pick. Like, why not just pick greatest hits or why not pick a certain song or whatever? But the idea that at a point in time, you could sort of transport someone back to this moment. And if you weren't there, that you still get to have that, I think is like really interesting. And obviously everybody does it now, but it's super cool. So that, that was kind of my first thoughts. Yeah, that it brings something up. I mean, there's nothing like a Grateful Dead concert and this idea of this experience. And what are you selling, really? I mean, the Grateful Dead were famously horrible business people. Why is something like music a business? It's not a business, really. And in fact, right around this time, actually prior to this album, their manager, who is the father of one of their drummers, had absconded with thousands of dollars they had. So they're like, even when they put this out, they were kind of broke and they're just trying to make money back in the fastest way possible. So I'm not saying like they really thought about things in terms of this, what we're selling. But in a sense, if you think about it more from the buyer standpoint, that's what people were buying, especially when growing. I grew up in California, Southern California in the 70s. And Grateful Dead was sort of ubiquitous. And you hear, again, a couple songs, Truckin' and some of the Sugar Magnolia and stuff like that you might hear on the radio. But it was just part of the ambience of, or ambiance of uh, California in the 70s. But if you went to the Grateful Dead show and got into it, so I went, yeah, like I said, 1980. I was like right after my junior year in high school and we went to, me and my brother and my girlfriend went and saw them at UCLA. And I was hooked from then on. And in a weird way, it wasn't just about the music, which I realized at a certain point, I've liked and listened to the Grateful Dead for so long, I can't even be objective about it. I would never argue, oh, these guys are the greatest, or they're better than the Beatles, or whatever people are going to say. I can't even say, I'm like, some people like it, some people don't. I can't judge it anymore. It's like part of my personality. But it's part of it had to do with this kind of transformative experience you could have at the concert. I mean, I also, as when I was younger, I played in a lot of bands. I still play music and write songs and things like that. And one of the things it was always, I was always looking for and even thought about, even in terms of my own music, was music on some level is a commodity. They're going to be, they're better musicians than the people in The Grateful Dead. They're better songwriters than the people in The Grateful Dead, especially now when you have Spotify and all those other things. Your access to music is unlike anything I had in my earlier part of my lifetime. So, You've got to give people something else. And I think that's even with Taylor Swift, with her heiress tour, definitely capitalized on selling this huge experience and bring your friends and spend $1,500. And I'm a, I like Taylor Swift, but I feel like she kind of was getting it. People want to buy, they don't want to just buy the music. And especially if they're going to go to a concert, you can hear the music better in your own room, in your ear pod, you know what I mean? So this better be something else. And the Grateful Dead, there. I mean, there are old timers too, like Fish out there who kind of do this, where the music's almost secondary. What they're really selling, some of these guys, is an opportunity, or a, they're selling a space for you to be yourself, or do your own thing, or be a freak, or be weird, or whatever. And really, what's a kind of non-judgmental zone? It's like when you're a dead show, it's like everyone's a friend of yours. You don't have to sort of put on a different face. You can just be yourself and you're respected and liked for that. I mean, when I went to dead shows, especially in the early 80s, they were fun. Like really fun, open experiences. And that's what a friend of mine said. Like he didn't like Grateful Dead, but he's like, you know what? When people say they like the dead, what they're remembering is this show they went to. And that time, you know, when I'm in Southern California and it was outside and it was at night and everyone was chill and it was, we had a lot of fun. That's why they like it. What do you think it is about the band or the whole scene here that keeps bringing people back like that? Um, it, it's, it's mellow, good feelings, good vibes. And so that's one side of it. Jerry Garcia also said, like in the 80s, that he felt like, because what people started doing is they'd go to see every show, you know, and going on tour. Yeah, yeah we're deadheads, as you can tell. 
I've been to 350 shows, and my wife's been to 150. And, and I mean, you might know kids in high school or whatever. Oh, yeah, I'm going on tour. And we, meaning you're going to buy, you're going to go see every show on the West Coast or something like that. I travel with the dead a lot whenever I can, and I sell these little bracelets I make. And um, I get a dollar each for these, and I make them myself. And that gives me enough money to pay for gas and food and lodging and tickets. And Garcia talked about that. He said, you know, we're now living in such a sanitized America that you don't really have hitchhiking. It's not like you can ride the rails, even though I have met crazy young kids. Who, yeah, we jumped a train and we went down to Pennsylvania. <laughs> That's nuts. But good for you. That's awesome. So he was saying, even doing this tour and setting up a kind of movable circus, it gave people something to do and a way to have adventures. You know, and the crowd moves along, provided with a place to go, something to do. And being out in the middle of nowhere, some city you've never been before, and you're only there because they pulled dead from the next town, and your car broke down. What are you going to do? So I think about it's this experience. You have to give people more if you want them to come back. It, you know, if you play the same songs every time, and I'm going to see the cookie cutter thing, maybe they'll see you once, but why come back? And they're not going to change their lives because of what seeing you. Because I think that's another thing, the Grateful Dead, I mean, for good and ill. People, there was a sense of freedom and possibility if you saw the dead and, and you could really question yourself, like, what am I doing, man? Am I doing stuff that matters to me? Like everybody's coming here because they think there's an answer here. That we'll all learn it together and stuff. I want to be free. I want to express myself. I want to be whatever. The Grateful Dead represented something to people. And they, to the point where they could even become a joke or, oh, you're stoner, you're Grateful Deadhead. It's because being a deadhead meant something. We would all like to be able to live an uncluttered life, a simple life, a good life, you know, and like think about moving the whole human race ahead a step or a few steps. It is. And just the same way that a Swifty means something or, uh, you know, whatever, whatever. Uh... A juggalo. <laughs> I'm thinking of insane clown posse. No, I was trying to think of who are bands where there's a thing. Juggalos right. are a perfect example. They're like no one would think of Juggalos and Deadheads as the same, but I think they're structurally the same. A friend of mine went to Insane Clown Posse in Denver. He said it was he'd go to Dead shows. He was like it was awesome, and not because he's so into Insane Clown Posse, but it's just what do people do? They dress up. It's an event, you know, and there's just crazy stuff that happens there, and that just doesn't happen anywhere else. There's another band, this heavy metal band called Guar. Have you guys ever heard of them? I have heard of that, yeah. Yeah, so I saw Guar many years ago now. But again, the kids, they like spray the audience with all this supposed to be fake blood or alien blood. It's just like a crazy scene, and the kids are so into it. So, yeah, I mean, we'll finally bring this back to B2B marketing, probably. But the one thing, the final thing I'll say on this is, you know, there was a guy who died, I want to say last year, John Perry Barlow. And he was associated with the dead for a long time. He was friends with Bob Weir, their rhythm guitar player. And he was road manager for a while, blah, blah, blah. But he was also a guy who was one of the founders of the Electronic Freedom Foundation. And I remember reading something he wrote back in early 2000s in Wired magazine. And he was talking about the dead and content and this idea that content should be free. The way he was framing it was really in terms of the Grateful Dead. So the Grateful Dead invites people to come in and tape their shows. They're not going after people, not going after bootleggers like even Led Zeppelin or Rolling Stones, other bands used to. They literally have, there's a taper section. You can come in and tape the show. We don't care. And the shows are never the same ever. And when we're done with it, they can have it, you know. In fact, a lot of my hardcore deadheads never listened to dead albums at all. You only listen to tapes of live shows. Now, and in fact, you could go on archive.org right now and I think essentially hear any concert the Grateful Dead ever did. If it was recorded, it's on archive.org and you can listen wow. to them all. It's free. Take it. We don't care. You can have it all. But especially when you saw in the 80s and the 90s up to when Jerry died, they sold out every show they played. And that's where the money came from. And now there's a lot of musicians out there who again making money off recording music. It's just super challenging nowadays. Well, now impossible. And it's kind of a drag 
for working musicians to hear, hey, just tour, man. And you'll, that's yeah. how you make all the money. First of all, how do you think you get people to the show and all these other things? And how fun do you think touring is? And how much money do you think a touring band makes? We're living in very different times than 1972. But it was, this was right as I was kind of getting into content marketing, or even before content marketing was even really a thing. This was almost like the whole HubSpot model, and basically almost the model for content marketing, period, you could argue comes from the Grateful Dead, which is you give away content to build an audience. Hey, Deadhead, send us your postcard. And then you get them to pay for something that can't be commodified like an in-person live experience that's only happening once and it'll happen here once. And then maybe if you're lucky, it'll happen again a year from now. And that, it really shaped my own, not always for the best, but shaped my own approach to content marketing and how, what content is supposed to be about and how it's supposed to be connected to your business. Meredith, questions or, or thoughts? Um, well, I do have a question that is like, aside from records, for the Grateful Dead, just being a, a fan of them, were there other parts that you felt like you wanted to own? That is Meredith O'Neill, our amazing producer extraordinaire. Like tie-dyeing t-shirts or things like that. Like, were there other parts of that experience that you really ascribe to? Interesting, yes. So I did, of course, going to shows, buying shirts. I mean, I even had friends who they sold shirts and made shirts and sold them at shows and stuff like that. Yeah. Getting shirts. It's not from the venue. I mean, that was an interesting thing. There was a whole economy, right. That got built up around the Grateful Dead, the parking lot kind of scene. And maybe the first time I went to a dead show when I was really young, I bought a shirt from the venue, but any other time I bought shirts, they were from freaks sitting outside selling t-shirts they'd made and stuff like that. Because that's the real stuff in a weird way, especially in the Grateful Dead world. You also got a sense that's more in the spirit of the thing. You know, fine, they're selling all this merch. And I know the bands make a lot of money off their merch tables. But I'd rather buy the thing that someone, they're being on tour. They're funding their tour by selling stuff that they made. And they're living in a van. And it was just cooler in a way. We keep jobs and we sell t-shirts and bumper stickers and food. The thing that I think is so interesting about the Grateful Dead approach is you talked about like how they were broke and how they were doing that stuff. Um, but much like the giving tree, like giving all of that stuff away, like it is a transaction of value that their community yeah. like returned back, right? The cosmic yeah. sort of, you put it out into the world and you get it back in yeah. much more than just dollars. Good karma. The more you give, the more you get, stuff like that. And I think that if you compare that to a different band, that didn't quite have, you know, the staying power or, you know, the fans that they could, you know, sell out 20 years later, that you don't necessarily have that. And I think that what's so cool is like, it's a choice, right? Like, I love when artists design their own merch, for example, and sell it for crazy expensive amounts of money. Like, that's yeah. awesome to me. Like, sell a t-shirt for $1,000 like, and only sell 10 of them. Like, I think that that stuff is brilliant. Yeah. I think that having certain ways that you shoot your show that only yeah. you sell in a certain way is awesome. I think that the Grateful Dead approach is awesome. And I think that that is like the beauty of these communities is when you feel like it's the most authentic to who they are and what they represent. Yeah. And then that's how they do it, right? Yeah. Everyone talks about audience, but I feel like the deadheads, if you're saying you're a deadhead, you're not saying I'm a part of an audience. Right. It's right. In fact, you might hardly ever go to shows like I've referred to myself as a deadhead for 30 or 40 years. I have friends who've gone to literally hundreds of shows and I, I probably saw them 15 times or something like that. Now that for most people, if they haven't seen any particular band 15 times, so that's already a lot. But I listened to the shows so much and it also became a way of just connecting with people like I lived in Vermont for a while. And one of the first things I did, I'm a nerd, and so I went in the bookstore. The guy working in the bookstore, he had long hair, turns out he's a deadhead, became one of my best friends up there. And there was a, if you have this thing, now you can plug in. We weren't connecting because we were both audience members. I never saw him <laughs> at a show, right? We were connecting because of, there was a whole vibe that went along with the dead and what it meant. If you were sitting next to me at a Christmas party and you were like, 
hey, Ian, I think that Nelly Country Grammar is one of the greatest albums of all time. I'd be like, hell yeah, I agree. <laughs> yeah. That, was, that was my 2003 or whatever. You know, like, I love that album. Nelly's great. That album's great. Whatever. I don't, Nelly I do great. not wear a Nelly t-shirt. You know what <laughs> right. I mean? Like, I don't, so there's just a very big difference and it's hard to build that stuff. But I think that that is the point. We always talk about in marketing where it's like, would you wear the t-shirt, right? Like I use the example very often of Marketo making Marketing Nation and Chandar, the CMO, being like, he could not believe how many people just wanted to be part of Marketing Nation. That just like being part of wearing the t-shirt, like that, that thing was so important to those people that like they would wear the t-shirt. Now, music is very different because like you, yeah. you could throw a stone and hit someone in a Ramones t-shirt. That doesn't mean yeah. they're a fan of the Ramones. Right. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. So it's a little different, but you know, I mean, I'm sure there's lots and lots of people that wear deadhead clothing that don't even understand what the bears They've never are. Even, yeah. They don't realize that bear refers to that guy, Owsley Stanley, who I mentioned before, who was the acid maker who funded them originally. And he was known as bear if you want to know why, I'll let you look it up because it's not appropriate. But so, oddly, and I think he even came up with the bear design himself. So there's a whole weird thing too about that bear. Oh, it's a fun little bear. It's oh, that was invented by the guy who essentially popularized acid. So that's gives the bear a different resonance. So I've been around the content marketing scene for a while. Like I worked at Marketing Profs short right after content rules came out with ann handley and cc chapman wrote and i mean i worked closely with ann for a long time and so this guy david Mirman scott who's also kind of a big guy in the content marketing world at least in the hubspot universe you know i saw him at these early on before he had become this name before he was all this stuff and people were always talking about oh yeah you got to build fans you got to learn from rock bands and that's how you do it which okay i get that on some level but it didn't make sense to me in a way because what the grateful dead so there was a couple things about it when you're a content creator who sells your content you know that's different from creating content so that you can sell enterprise architecture management software or something like that right it's a very different thing and what the grateful dead was doing in a very crowded cutthroat market how do you end up differentiating yourself because you know certainly in 1972 the grateful dead weren't the only band on earth there were hundreds and hundreds of bands most of them you've totally forgotten about never heard about and they weren't making a ton of money they weren't millionaires they weren't the beatles they weren't the rolling stones or anything they were like a bar band a touring band what they were selling wasn't just their content it was this come see my show i'm gonna perform they were performers they're like a circus I'm going to come and see you. And so they were very conscious, I think, about how they did that. One thing there was, okay, we're going to make a mailing list. So at least we can tell people where we're going to be playing. We're going to pull people out of woodwork. We're also going to encourage people to tape and share tapes. And especially we're going to focus on college campuses. So they toured relentlessly. Like when I saw them in 1980, it was at Poly Pavilion at UCLA. When I saw them later, I mean, I saw them at Berkeley. I saw them like... They knew who their audience was very clearly and that these are people who want to come. That was also became very clear that it's a party environment. If you go to the dead, you're going to party. Do you think that your movement or your idea, the hip idea, is essentially connected up with drugs? Yeah, I would say that that's uh, a large part of the framework. So it's kind of interesting how if you're trying to sell something in a market where there people have options, how do you differentiate yourself? And I think this goes back to what people have been talking about for 10 years or more now. Like, how do you differentiate on the experience? There's nothing like a Grateful Dead concert, you know? What is it about it that keeps bringing you back? Um, I don't know. I guess it's like every show I go to, I go and I meet more people. And it's just like there's such good energy here. Um, it's a really hard word to describe, though. But you'll know what I mean after the show this evening. I mean, it's gotten to be so big. I remember when Inbound, so Inbound Marketing Conference here, HubSpot puts on every year. 
I went to one of the very first earliest ones, probably 200 people there. I think there were 15,000 people when they just had in Boston. I could be, these numbers could be wrong, but it's tens of thousands of people. They always have big name speakers. They oh, yeah, hire sure. big band, right? You know? So HubSpot's done a good job. And oddly enough, the, Brian Halligan, the CEO, is a deadhead. And he and David Meerman Scott wrote a whole book about 10 years ago about the Grateful Dead and marketing and stuff like that. So, but I think there's something there that he got that, it, like this marketing nation, like inbound, you got to make people feel like they're part of something bigger, especially when, strictly speaking, is HubSpot have the best CMS out there? I mean, it has big fans. I've worked with a lot of them. I mean, we use it here. It has, it has its good points and bad points. It's not like the rocking, this is the clearest, best thing. And yet, it worked. I mean, HubSpot had built a community around itself that was bigger than this product in a way. I was in the marketing advice world for a long time. And it's easy to say, hey, man, you just got to create a great experience, make people feel like they're part of something great, and you'll yeah. succeed. They're like, okay, cool. It reminded me when I was doing podcasts. You say, well, what marketers do you like? Oh, I love Apple. I think he feels you'd be more like Apple. And I literally said to the guy, you mean have a genius CEO who invents new technologies that no one's ever seen on earth and then <laughs> promotes it? Like, okay, so all I've got to do is be absolutely unique and different from everyone else and I'll succeed? <laughs> I can't wait to succeed. <laughs> well, <laughs> It's interesting. So a friend of mine manages a handful of artists. One of the artists we were doing some marketing stuff with, and uh, we were looking at the data. And I was like, this is crazy that this concert that they were doing, sort of like a college tour type concert, and this concert did really bad. Like it just didn't have the same level of attendees. We're like big college town, tons of people in that geo are listening to his music. Turns out that party or that concert was 21 and over. And they started looking into the information and other concerts were no age requirement, but 21 to drink. And then he had tons of 16 and 17 year old fans. He had tons of high school kids that were listening to the music. And so if they were doing concerts that were 21 and over or at a venue that was 21 and over or like 18 to party, 21 to drink, whatever, then they wouldn't do it. And those are the type of lessons that I think are so interesting when you try to look at how to compare that to, to B2B marketing, like, yeah, maybe there are that group of population that wants you to, you know, to ride the revolution or to do whatever. But most of us want to do a great job at our jobs, get better at it, and then get back to our family or our friends or yeah. going to concerts or doing the other stuff that we do outside of work. And I think that um, sometimes making a community play is about how do you give time back in a meaningful way. I mean, the big reason why all these events are so popular is because, in my opinion, is because you get to go to some cool city and hang out for a few days and you get to learn a bunch of stuff, meet a bunch of new people. And, you know, you get to drink or hang out or whatever, meet people, go to the after parties. And it's a little break from work and it's nice. And I think that we're seeing that events have changed a bunch, but I think that we're seeing that the way that you do those and the utility and the age of the people. If you do that same event for a bunch of C-level executives, they kind of get back to their kids. They don't want to spend three days anywhere at, anymore because they have to do that already because they have to go to you know customer stuff or go to board meetings or go to whatever. So I think there's so much about knowing your audience, obviously, that we talk yeah. about. But like you really do have to know and create stuff specifically for them, for like where yeah. they have a need and a belonging. And for some people, that might just be like, I need Friday afternoons so I can go pick my you know, kid up and take him to his baseball game. That's been the funny thing. I think, like I said earlier in my career, a big part of this marketing advice thing. And one of the things I always struggled with, whether I was writing blog posts or running podcasts or putting together training sessions or even speaking at conferences, was like, it's not hard to describe what you have to do or what matters. What seems to be so challenging is how do you do it? Like you were just saying, know your audience. Okay, this is like marketing 101 if you want to do things. It's like, let's have the data help us decide 
and not look at the wrong data, like you were saying. Is it, I need to go to a place where there's college kids and there's a lot of people there, or do I need to go to a place where there's all ages venues so that I can actually have my real fans come see me? You know, if you're just focused on the size of the place or how many people you can fit in the hall, that's the wrong data. Who's actually listening to my stuff? Who's showing up? Who's paying, buying my stuff on Bandcamp or whatever they're doing? And I think the fact of the matter is on some level, it can sometimes be very hard to really understand who that audience is, but also what truly matters to them. So I'm not critical of marketers if they say, ah, we're doing a best guess and it's close enough and it's this, I'm talking to, you know, director level people in this function at this place. You can be kind of generic at a certain level, but I think if you want to take it to the next level, it's trying to plug in, yeah, what's really going to speak to what these people want. And that's where I do think it's interesting when you're marketing to marketers, it's something I was very conscious of. And I have a theory about this. We'd love to hear it. So I want to be part of Marketing Nation. You know, you're psyched about that. I want to be part of the inbound group. Marketing Profs too. So Marketing Profs isn't as big as these other guys, but they're B2B forum, tends to have a thousand people more. And it's a really cool vibe to be there. I've been going on and off for years. And every time I go, I love it. And I see people I, have, I see just once a time. I mean, it's an event and you're psyched to be there. So often I have these marketing events, people want to belong, right? And a lot of times I felt like the marketing speakers, and I mean, I've gotten a little older, so I'm not going to name names. There is a genre, let's say, of marketing speaker that was probably more popular about five, six years ago, and it petered out a little bit, where it's all, they're kind of self-help gurus. They're like, hey, you got to grind. You got to do this special thing. You got to be the purple squirrel. You got to... And it was all this stuff about how you can be special and awesome. And it was always so weird to me when I was at marketing events, especially B2B marketing events. And I was trying to figure out why. Like, why are these people like, it's all, you got it, you go, energize, you're going to knock them dead. And I realized, I felt it was because a lot of B2B marketers feel bad about themselves. (laughs) And they feel bad in the marketing roles because... And I mean, I work at a B2B software company and stuff like that. I think we have an awesome marketing organization and the company's been very successful. But the fact of the matter is, especially B2B tech, the two things that matter are is your product and usually kind of engineering product vision and your sales people. And marketing is there to generate leads and help with events and ideally find some big Thing that you can try to get people to rally around. But I feel like it can be a real struggle for B2B marketers. I remember being at a marketing profs event and I was like, you know, marketers, you have to talk to customers. If you're not talking directly to customers, then you don't know what's going on. And they, people were like, yeah, but sales won't let us talk to them. <laughs> That's the problem. First of all, you have such a relationship with sales that they don't want you talking to their customers. Like, that's a bad sign. But you're also not promoting something to the salespeople to say why it's valuable. Like, for example, podcasts is a great way. So, okay, maybe if I have a podcast that for my company, B2B company, I've done it, several of them, people will let you talk to their customer if it's going to be on your podcast. Because now that's a special value add to the customer or even the person above their customer. You're going to talk to the CEO instead of your director line of business person because this is something that matters to the company. You have to have some value there. Or there was another thing that when I was at a company called Aquin that the, the VP of marketing and I had come up with this idea of how could we do speaking engagements but at client sites. And so, because we had tried to arrange this lunch and we were going to invite people and all the salespeople were like, I'm not going to invite this person to that thing. I don't (laughs) think they'll want to come and I don't want to waste their time. And it was interesting, the product marketer who was pushing the event, she was so bummed. And she's like, but we have to. We said that's part of our third quarter goal. And I was like, it's not going to happen. If sales isn't behind it, we can't do it. They're not going to buy into it. So we went back to the salespeople. Okay, what if we, what would work? And 
There was the one thing that worked was we were a client, a very large insurance company down in Connecticut, like one of the big ones, was one of our clients. And they were really struggling with content marketing. And we were a staffing company. We were not a marketing company. We didn't do anything, but we staffed up their marketing and creative service department. So we said, well, I know a lot about content marketing. I'll come, we'll give a webinar, in-house webinar, just to your people. And we had, I want to say, 175 people there. The CM, the head of the department was on the call. And so it was a bit important learning for me. First of all, customers are hungry for knowledge and they love it if a vendor can offer them something that's not a sales pitch. I wasn't pitching yeah. anything. We didn't sell anything related to what I did. But all the people who we are talking to, who we do place, had to do content marketing. And so now we come in as not just a, you know, in the staffing industry, they've called body shoppers and stuff. We weren't just filling seats. We were a company that actually understood the industry, understood what you were trying to do, understood what your people had to do. And we're going to come in and talk to you, share our knowledge about this. Now, of course, sales is more than happy to have us come and talk to their people because we were providing value to them that went you know, beyond, oh, I generated MQLs or here's a special offer I came to tell you about. So I, P2P marketers, I feel you. I don't want you to feel bad. I'm a B2B marketer myself. <laughs> there are things you can do, but I think part of it has to do with collaborating on the one hand with the sales team, also being close to the product if you're in tech, and make sure that you're actually doing things that are of value, not just to the, you're helping salespeople build relationships by delivering something that's actually of value to the customer that really has nothing to do necessarily with what you're actually selling them. Okay, so how do you think about building content at LeanIX? It's interesting because we're also in an interesting stage of, of this company. So LeanIX has been around for about 12 years, when I say almost 13. And I mean, our content is, is in some ways, it's very operational focused. Like we really have a marketing qualified lead goal for our content. So a lot of it is just making sure that we're producing things that people are going to be interested in reading about, but more importantly, that the person who's interested in reading about it is actually someone that we want to talk to. But there's also been this other side of it that we've been working on, which is, so there's a kind of blocking and tackling, like, at Linux is in a special position, I think, because when you get into B2B tech, so much of it, you can focus on content and the message, but if you don't have a product that can deliver on it, it doesn't matter. And I mean, and I've worked at B2B companies where we had a concept and there were even I built content around it, you know, but when it came down to the product, it just couldn't deliver on what its promise was. With LeanIX, it's in a very different position. LeanIX came into this area of enterprise architecture management with a very different concept for what it could. So it already differentiated itself from legacy tools that are like this, we're going to be different. It built a lot of differentiated stuff into the product. And then as it's turned out, when people get the product, they kind of become fans of it. So LeanIX is based in Bonn, Germany, and we do have a much bigger presence in Germany and Europe than we do here in the United States yet, though we do have hundreds of clients here. And But it was very fascinating to me. We had this event in Frankfurt that was our LeanIX Connect Summit. There were about a thousand people there. So it was actually really big, especially for an enterprise architecture management event. But the most interesting thing to me was, and it made me have to kind of rethink about how on some level I think about our content. So the CEO, he got up and he gave his presentation and he's going through and you, it's always kind of a tell I think, like, when do the cameras come out? Like, when, if a, someone's presenting, what's Always. everyone sna snapping a picture of? That's the money slide. It's the money slide. You know, of course, and we had announced an AI thing. Of course, people were excited about that, and there was some other stuff there. But it was interesting. So one of the things that, when you're doing enterprise architecture management, which is essentially mapping out all your technology that you have in your organization and how it supports your business capabilities that you have. So there's a lot of layers of mapping. 
what's my business process layer, what's my business capability layer, then what are my applications and things like that that support those business capabilities. But then how is all that technology connected, you know, or interconnected, or what are the dependencies and all this other stuff. So an enterprise architecture is really the technical structure that allows your business to function, but it actually can go all the way into even business architecture and stuff like that. So it's, it can be pretty complex. And the funny thing is, and I never thought about it before I came here very much, it, which is if I want to make a map, even of a country, I have to start saying, well, okay, so what are the elements that I want to capture in my map? Well, I definitely want to capture the layout of the land. So I'm going to have to have some way of representing like where's a valley and where's a mountain. You know, you can do topographical map, you can do it lots of ways. That's a thing. If my map contains data, part of the data is what the land looks like. Okay, so that's the data. I'm going to have land thing. I also want to, of course, have rivers and stuff like that because that on lakes and whatever, that's important. I also want to, of course, have cities and maybe towns, and but I'm going to have a cutoff, you know, certain maps. So again, essentially what I'm describing is a data model for your map. What does your map consist of? Well, there's land is one data layer, cities and populations, another data layer, connecting roads is another data layer. And I could say, okay, a map's data model consists of cities, geographical interest, you know, geographical data and road and transportation data, whatever. Now, imagine if you go into an enterprise architecture world and you start, well, what do I want to have? Well, I want to have applications. I want to have all this stuff. Anyway, so we've had one of our selling points is that people, it can take them a long time to set up an enterprise architecture practice because they focus so much on this data model. What's the right data model for me to capture my whole space? And in fact, it could take a year to settle on it. Oh, yeah, now we've got this whole thing. So we came out of the box with, now, we have a basic data model that's based on best practice. It's good enough for you to start with. If you have to customize it, you can. And this is how we can ensure fast time to value because you don't have to waste time doing something we think is a waste of time working on your data model. Start with this. We just recently, in six months ago, decided to expand our data model and transform it. And we added some things. We renamed some things. Well, we put this up and when the CEO, Andre Chris, put it up on the slide. Out came the cameras. People were like, oh, yeah, oh, my God, the new data model. And again, talking about audience insight and what people really care about and what's the money slide that people are actually going to care about. I think if there's any lesson here, it's like, how do you find out what's the thing that would bring the cameras out on this and that stuff when you're talking to people? What is someone going to want to share? Now, as it turns out, particularly among the, in the enterprise architecture community, they understand the challenge of this data model creation. They see the value in what we've done, and they're also interested in that. But it, it reminded me of just how technical our audience is. And, I mean, our content, a lot of times, are high level. We try to go up the ladder and have CIO-focused content and things like that. But... Ultimately, the stuff that really moves the needle for us is the things that resonates with this very technical group. So one way I think about our content is it has to be very technically correct. You don't have to go into this precise weeds of here's specifically how you do that, this and that, even though sometimes they want to know. But it's one of the ways that I've really focused on with our content creation is being technically correct. Is this resonate with the audience? Because as soon as the audience reads something, it's like, that's not how that works, or that doesn't make sense. Now you've lost them. So I know it's maybe a long way around to a, a relatively small point. But again, it's audience insight and making sure that you can focus on something that's going to matter to them. Yeah, you know, we always talk about no traffic on the extra mile, sort of our mantra here at Caspian. And I always feel that way with like, whether it's technical content or more entertaining content or whatever it is, it's like, Go the extra mile, right? You know, like if you were to sell someone a house that had no furniture in it versus a house with just some random furniture from Ikea versus super nice furniture with all the nice finishes with an interior decorator, that house is going to sell for like way more money than the house yeah. that isn't staged. Like there's yeah. data that proves that, right? Yeah, yeah. And it's like, true. but people don't want to go the extra mile to put the yeah. extra finishes on, to do the extra yeah. research for the report. They just want yep. to stop at mediocre. And if you look at yeah. what the Grateful Dead did in their 1972 yeah. album, they went yeah. the extra mile. 
They really, <laughs> they did. They cared about the sound, for example. So that was what was interesting, where the Grateful Dead went the extra mile was on the sound quality. Were they screwing up on stage? And sometimes, sure. Were their vocals off? Maybe. But they knew that overall, the thing that people experience, people are paying for, is going to come down. Does the sound, is it blow or is it good? And we've all been at shows where I think that was great. It was too loud. Or I couldn't hear so-and-so and whatever. That was their extra mile. And their audience, oddly enough, even though people think of them as just burnout deadheads, they're actually super discerning. And, wow, oh, man, that was bad. No, I didn't that transition. I, that, you know, Jerry's really on fire tonight. It's the same thing even we see him now with John Mayer. I was just like, okay, oh, he's nailing it. No, that was really good. You know, but, oh, but Bob Weir, who I was critical of when I was 21, and I was still critical of even as I'm approaching, well, 61, I was like, I couldn't believe when I saw John Mayer and, and the other day, I mean, it's two months ago, and I was like, Bob, we're still bugging me the same way he did when I was like 20. Because, dude, that's a horrible sound. What are you doing? So anyway, so how do we wrap this thing up, Meredith and Ian? I think we just did. Uh, <laughs> okay. <laughs> Matthew, it's been awesome having you on the show. Any uh, final thoughts or any piece of advice for our B2B marketing audience? I guess I have to say something about AI. I know it's horrible. So it's weird. Have you guys heard about this thing? Generative AI? It's a big deal now, apparently. So I thought, I thought have, it was Al. I thought that that was a, that it's was a, big, a lowercase L. It's a big problem with the typography. I agree. And they have a branding problem. I totally agree with you. Yeah. So it's funny because as a writer, I mean, that's where I got into content through writing. And I mean, even a year ago, our CMO was like, what's our AI strategy? How are we going to use ChatGPT? And of course, we have an AI assistant in our product, and everyone's trying to figure it out. When you're a writer, and you try to use AI as a writer, it can be very frustrating, because I feel like a lot of the stuff that we need to write, we can write faster, and for now, than AI can. AI will probably get better. But what I do think, what I was realizing is, it's really about the use case, how is AI going to be the most helpful? And I was especially thinking about this in terms of what's going to happen when buyers use AI. So what happens when I don't go to your website to find anything out? I send a, an agent, an AI agent, which already exists, and I send them to your website. And I say, I want you to go to this website. And I want you to download a couple pieces of content for me and summarize them for me. I don't want to look at them. And I want you to know... What's their pricing model? You know, what are they most integrated with? And could you tell me their top 10 clients that they have? You know, and your AI can come back. I mean, there are browsers now where you can just hover over a URL and it will summarize what's on the page. So I think what's important to remember isn't necessarily, yes, I mean, you can use AI to generate a thousand SEO optimized pages if you want, and that works. But I think what people need to start thinking about is what's going to matter to an AI reader of what I'm doing? Not a person. Not, so it's not about the branding. It's not about stock photography. It's not about anything other than the content. I think content, the weird thing with AI, and I don't think it's all AI-generated content, but your content has to be optimized in a weird way for AI. I love it. Matthew, wonderful chatting with you. Thank you for teaching us all about Grateful Dead. For our listeners, go check out the album. Go check out The Grateful Dead, for sure. Go check out Lean IX. Any final thoughts? Anything to plug? Love. That's my final parting thing is love. <laughs> we, we just have an IDC report that's a business value report that we've just got out there right now. And it very clearly quantifies the impact that Lean IX can bring for your company. Awesome. Thanks again and take care. All right. Thanks a lot. There is the real danger that more and more young people may follow the call to turn on, tune in, drop out. Well, that's it for today. I hope you got some good ideas for your B2B content. Thank you for listening to Remarkable. I'm Ian Faison, CEO of Caspian Studios. 
Remarkable is created by the team at Caspian Studios, B2B podcast as a service. Caspian also creates fiction series for B2B companies, so if you want a business thriller, you can learn more at caspianstudios.com. Hollywood-style storytelling for B2B. And in today's episode, you heard from myself, Ian Faison, and Meredith O'Neill, senior producer here at Caspian Studios. Remarkable was produced this week by Meredith O'Neill, mixed by Scott Goodrich, and our theme song is Solomon by Falak. Be remarkable and rise above the noise. <laughs>